Welcome back to Reformed Millennials. The podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Joel, happy Friday. Thanks, buddy. 24-hour news cycle this week has been nuts. Yeah, it's super fast. Oilers suck again. We're back to... You know, mid 2010s. Yeah. Looks awful. Or I guess early 2010s. We got, obviously, we have um, Cowboys with the Boys. Cowboy. Yeah. yeah, Thursday night or Thursday Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving Day football going nuts. Crazy viewership. Three games. None of them good, but still (laughs) crushing everybody else as we expected. We got John Rahm in the PGA getting offered 600 mil. Rumored. 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 He'll never leave. J.J. Watt apparently is a good friend of his. Mm-hmm. Retired football player, for those that don't. He is. He, he said that I will beat Rom to a pulp. If that's true, he doesn't take it. <laughs> <laughs> if he doesn't take the 600. Yeah. And then in tech news, we have Sam Altman, who doing was in best. a revolving door yeah. of craziness all week. Yeah. So what was the take there? I feel, like that was, I feel like that was all over Twitter or X yeah. all week. And it felt like it was you literally needed to be following it minute by minute to keep up with everything that was going on. I think for one, and my brain doing this episode has been struggling to figure out which topics we're going to talk about. <laughs> and I think we're just going to run through items until we hit an hour. But um, <laughs> the open AI saga was um, interesting for sure. But I first want to point one thing out is that, you know, what the, the way in which content is distributed and received is goes through a funny pattern and it changes all the time. I mean, back in the 50s to the 90s, um, news outlets broke a lot of news. And now we have this new order of things that are seen by people in that TikTok kind of makes things go viral first. And then they show up on Reels. And then they're on YouTube Shorts. And then they make it to Facebook. And then your grandma shares them to you in, <laughs> in a Facebook message. And... Um, when it comes to tech, finance, hard-hitting geopolitical news, I think that the order in which things are discussed and, and sort of sorted out, mm-hmm. it's almost certainly it starts on Twitter. And I think that those that are calling for the death of the blue bird, mm-hmm. the now the X, is premature and unlikely to occur. I think it is still where all important news is broken and then disseminated from what was i'm this is so bad what was the name of that of the i guess meta equivalent that came out threads <laughs> apparently it's growing name. still is it which okay, is surprising great. i just like from the day that i opened it and i looked at it for probably five or six weeks to see how it started curating for me mm. and and what happened no. it's because the problem with it is is the and I don't want to get on to a tangent about types of media or content no, no. that people produce, but yep. the people you follow on Instagram aren't wordsmiths. So the problem is, is they're likely beautiful and or great at making video content, but they aren't fantastic entertainers with the written word. Mm. And that is what 140 or 280 characters requires. So um, not Unlimited that that's an insult now, in any way, but that's, I think the the defining difference between why Instagram's been so wildly popular and threads hasn't followed suit. Yeah. Not to mention just like change in general is slow. Like <laughs> yeah. You're not just yeah. have yeah. X billion people change. In- well, and I think we'll get onto that later because 
um, Morgan Housel just recently released a new book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically around the idea of um, the items in the well, ideas that don't change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I highly recommend. He's never book. had any other good ideas. So no, no, no. He's yeah, generally speaking awesome. a terrible writer. <laughs> um, but back on track, the OpenAI saga was interesting to follow, but often changing. And I think there was a lot of really great takes through all the mess and, and memes and yeah, delirious uh, overshooting of, of expectations. And it was so odd. You had what was a clear shock. OpenAI would inarguably be the most important private company in America right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they were or employees were um, negotiating with Thrive Capital to exit their their equity at an $86 billion valuation. And this all seemed to be going off without a hitch. And then on a Friday or Saturday, the board chooses to oust Sam Altman because they no longer believe that he is fit or he was not communicating to the board sufficiently. And then tech Twitter or Twitter in general, as it does all the time, everyone turns into a board of directors expert and they talk about um, corporate structure. And here I am try- sounding like I, I'm some sort of expert, which I yep, am not. Please tell us. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, but effectively, you have a uh, not-for-profit that is then overseeing a for-profit entity that Microsoft invested in and owns, I think, 50% of. But it's still controlled by a board on the not-for-profit entity. The not-for-profit entity had a capped structure. So the new structure below, the one that um, Microsoft invested in, mm. that... Sam Altman is the CEO of, had a capped return, which means you could only get 100x on the investment. Um, so that effectively meant it couldn't mm-hmm. get any bigger in terms of the investor's equity couldn't gotcha. overstate yep. the value. Anyways, right. um, this led to what was meant to be this altruistic corporate structure where the board of directors is meant to stop what is happening at the at the company if they believe that AGI is reached, so artificial general intelligence. And it is rumored that GPT-5, that Sam Altman was pushing forward too quickly mm. without considering the ramifications of the technology that they right. were building. Yeah, so largely that, outside of the mission of what... Yeah, they, they basically were saying it is that capitalism was taking over and their effective altruism was out the window. Mm-hmm. And obviously a ton of takes come from this and they effectively let him go. They fire him as CEO. And then over the next five days, there is a whole hodgepodge of different things that happen. First, Satya Nadella, who has committed $13 billion to micro, of Microsoft's capital and or um, Azure credits, so mm-hmm. their cloud provider, because if you don't know this, GPT is reliant on cloud computing and NVIDIA chips. Anyways, they're providing that infrastructure to the tune of, I think, $12 billion of their $13 billion. And he's like, uh-oh, this is not good. Mm-hmm. We invested in this business a large sum of money for even the unlimited money bank account of Microsoft. This is a huge investment for them. Mm-hmm. We can't just let this go by the wayside. Mm-hmm. He makes an offer to Sam Altman to join the Microsoft artificial intelligence team and kind of head it off. And in doing so, he's recognizing, oh, my God, chat or um, OpenAI has 760 employees. What are we going to do with them? He basically has a blank check for all of their equity and their grants that are attached to OpenAI and leaves them so that if they want to be made whole, they can come to Microsoft as well. Right. Now, this is a challenge because Microsoft is a for-profit entity. I think that OpenAI, a lot of the time, was able to attract a lot of this talent because they were an effective altruism business. Mm -hmm. We saw how that did with FTX, with all these effective altruists there. But with all of that being said... Funny how that works with the employees wanting to uh, cash out at an $86 billion value. But it was all for the better of society. Now, (laughs) with all that being said, the... They had a vote post fact because the board, one of, I think Brockman, his last name is Bob yeah, Brockman, yep. Ilya. Yep. Anyways, he came out, tweeted, said, I regret removing Sam Altman. So now this sets off this, this I don't know, chain of events where 
I think something to the tune of 700 of the 760 employees say, mm-hmm. we are going to resign and leave and go yeah. to Microsoft if Sam Altman isn't brought back. Say the court of public opinion. Yeah. Is quite clear on all of this. Yeah. And I think that there was some interesting back and forth on Twitter between some of the large tech moguls. So you had obviously Elon Musk, who um, left and was one of the co-founders of OpenAI, left back in 2018. Um, he kind of just stranded his investment there. Mm-hmm. He was of the opinion that the the likely reality of this um, firing was because they have gotten to dangerous territory and Sam Altman had was no longer an effective altruist and was much more interested in, in the advancement and the appreciation of his technology. Mm-hmm. And that posed a problem. And uh, Gavin Baker also had it, who is the um, CEO and chief investment officer of Atreides, who also has some private investments and that sort of thing. But he's he's pretty prominent on Twitter. It also mentioned something fairly similar to this. Mm-hmm. And then there was a really great thread from Ram, who I don't want to pro- try to pronounce his last name because I'll, I'll butcher it. But he spoke about how Sam Altman was rumored to be um, heading into Saudi Arabia to mm-hmm. raise money for a new GPU slash cloud infrastructure project that he was Yep. going to be building. And then everyone was talking about why the heck would they be doing this? So now this comes to the crux of what I think is incredibly important and increasingly the topic of, of discussion. And um, Chamath Palahapitiya made his best effort to talk about where all the profitability was going to be found in the um, AI chain. And the way that I would approach artificial intelligence is that it, it has a bunch of things. It's like when you look at a house, what is the profit center in a house? Is it in the sale of the home, in the real estate agent? Probably, but let's not talk about that. I don't want to get off onto a tangent. Is it the people selling fixtures? Is it the people that are doing are actually building the house? Is it the land itself? Um, where Where is the profitability? The same thing should be thought of when you think about artificial intelligence. It's not just the the actual model itself, the large language model that you're interacting with when you think about ChatGPT. It goes all the way down to the GPU, which is largely created by um, NVIDIA. They have their Mm -hmm. H100 and H200 chips that it seems like everybody is buying. And right now you have the three large tech companies that are all trying to build them themselves. Mm -hmm. So the H100 and H200 chips are plugged into the um, Azure, Google Cloud, um, Amazon AWS, all of their cloud businesses that are outrageously large businesses to the tune of $120 billion per year in annual revenue. Um, they're massive, 50 plus percent gross margins. They are the world's best businesses as we speak, with the exception of probably search. They are themselves trying to build these GPUs for their cloud infrastructure. So they're no longer passing down all of their revenue off to NVIDIA, which is producing the world's fastest growing large cap company. Mm-hmm. So with all that in mind, and this obviously being the the major opportunity, at least currently in artificial intelligence it's not the model it's while the model is the future the the opportunity it's definitely not where all the profits being made so he's starting to make this semiconductor company because he views um, the biggest impediment to the success of chat gpt to open ai mm-hmm. to being the cost of gpus to being the cost of cloud computing so he wants to go and build his own infrastructure build the railroad himself. right yeah, yeah exactly and this obviously was deemed to be a problem so he was out fundraising in, in the Middle East and he comes back, he's fired. Now, five, 10, what is it? Maybe uh, six days later, seven days later, yep. he's now returning as, as OpenAI CEO. Everybody's happy. And I'm guessing this, along with the 700 employees that supported him, were the big reason for it. You can't lose that much talent. Yeah. While they may or may not be six months, nine months, um, some people are saying that these large like these LLMs take five years to train. Um, I don't think that he was willing to go in reverse that much and uh, start from scratch. He very much wanted to return. And it feels like nothing was accomplished. But really what was, I think, determined was that this effective altruism, this socialism, this idea that we will just continue to work towards a goal in which we believe is good for everyone Mm -hmm. never works. We can talk about the the famine of the great famine that 
occurred in China, where the, the largest mass death of, of human beings occurred because of the collective under the guise of, of communism. I, I think what this clearly proves- Maybe not a direct parallel, but- <laughs> Well, it's similar in, in the sense that like, this doesn't work when you don't have aligned incentives. Because yeah, effective yeah. altruists believe different things about what is right and wrong, what is a danger and what isn't, what is a risk and what isn't a risk. Mm -hmm. The reason why capitalism tends to group everyone together in, towards a common goal is because it literally does have one. It's profitability. And there is no argument about profitability. There mm -hmm. can be an argument about what's dangerous or what's a risk to human society. And um, all of this fell because of the corporate structure. And if the corporate structure was the same as the a typical for-profit capitalist in, um, company, well, then you'd be in a good position. But that's not what happened. And it all fell apart. And it mm -hmm. seemed like the companies that were going to benefit were the very large hyperscaler, hyper mega cap businesses. Right. And I think that's even more obvious now. Mm -hmm. So Microsoft comes out of this largely unscathed. I think it shows their power within the relationship. And um, for a minute there, a lot of people are getting more excited about Elon Musk rock. They were talking about um, Google, Amazon even seemed to be the, the landing place with their, their investment in Anthropic um, for a lot of those employees. And then that is all reversed. Mm. So what did I just discuss? I don't even know. <laughs> all I know is it's that a, it's a, it was an interesting six days. I, I, I think the couple of takeaways that I had from it, from your takes right now or your synopsis of that, as well as me just following it along, was that um, at the end of the day, you're right, the incentives were misaligned in terms of, I think what the board was doing was probably what a board should be doing in terms of this is what we agreed on in terms of the mission statement for this company or what it's supposed to, because that's what it's supposed to be doing. Oversight, taking away the ultimate power of a CEO saying, we're doing this when on day one of the company and this is where we're going towards. So, and then them changing course, which they believed obviously in some which way, shape or form, Altman was doing that. So Morgan Housel on the podcast I listened to today mm -hmm. talked about the actual goal of a for-profit board is to hire, fire, and um, determine whether or not the CEO is doing a good job. 100%. They don't have – they're not supposed to um, make operational decisions. That's not what no. they're in place for. It's a high-level oversight, 5,000-foot view. Obviously, they're going to have questions if you're <laughs> – They're going to determine is the morale good and is it because of leadership? Is, yeah. Is the – uh, profitability have there the, for if financial results have plummeted why? for some reason why is this the case what is going on 100%. you need to explain yourself i always think about silicon valley and <laughs> the board meetings at hooli and, <laughs> and him continuing to try to keep his job and, and that discussion so because and again and they would be talking about you know obviously for-profit company okay well also what's our what's the company's uh, stakeholders in this case and and who is going to be um, you know benefiting or not benefiting from decision decision making that is happening at this level because mm -hmm. we need to like you said keep the CEO and the whole company in mind rather than just one person's direction so the fact that again misaligned incentives 100% agree number two on go forward obviously I think this technology has like you talked about the I guess the social aspect of it saying like, is this bad for society? If we continue to invest in this specific thing or keep pushing forward as fast as possible without knowing, like you said, the repercussions or what it could lead to. I think that's a fair within reason. That's a fair um, argument or a fair consideration to make. And you need those type of people as over, like having that opinion or having that, that oversight involved on a go forward basis. I assume Microsoft, although being a, like you said, for-profit company and the direction of what the new oversight is going to be over open AI might be different. I think that aspect is still probably going to be there or still going to be a requirement to be there because like you said, I think there's there the backlash from not having that in the future, if it comes to light that that kind of oversight wasn't included, will be dramatic and company killing put it that way so yeah, totally anyways interesting six six days i don't think i've ever i'm sure 
living in Altman's shoes over those six days would have been, or being a fly on the wall. Is it possible that the Edmonton Oilers could have done this to their head coach and bring him back? <laughs> that actually might be the answer. Yeah, we'll give Jay a call and see if he can. I'm open to it. Yeah, because we, you know, instead of the Kate, don't be too instead proud. of the 700 employees, we should just as a fan base in Edmonton all Revolt. sign a petition and say Bring we're not going to game yeah. until Jay's behind the bench again. I think he'd do it. I think he'd come back. <laughs> He's not too big. He probably hasn't even moved yet. <laughs> that, uh, would, that would be a revelation. I'm I'm open to it, uh, Cam. I think that this should just be a revolving. Um, placeholder in our podcasting but yep. car dealership guy my man <laughs> <laughs> he posted this thing i don't know a week ago maybe big industry news hyundai has announced it will new sell new vehicles on amazon in 2024 yeah now sales will still be fulfilled by local dealerships gotta keep them open right but this is just a new top of funnel way of acquiring customers and everything continues to change slowly but surely the evolution of the car market is changing. Obviously, again, I'm still not a doomsdayer. We're not going to have dealerships anymore. Mm-hmm. I think the look and feel of them is changing, clearly. Very clearly. Fulfillment centers. Yeah. Also, second tweet from him. Mm-hmm. This is not in our, our doc, but last night he tweets, billion-dollar car supplier or car, operator, car dealership operator in the United States is offering their second in the history of them owning dealerships. Black Friday sale for cars. Ooh. What does that mean? Because he has a third tweet. Temperature check on the economy. For anyone in the car business, how is your month month going? And this thread of Mm -hmm. people clearly in the car business talking about individual sales in different corners, pockets of the United States. Actually, there's a few people in Canada that also responded. It was really interesting and a really effective way to get a feel for how things are going. Pollsters in the past are toast. (laughs) <laughs> because these people are doing a better job getting a sense for how, where the market is than, uh, in my opinion, reading some yes or no poll to people that actually answer their email slash text message slash phone call that you make. Yeah. The new way of gauging temperature um, is either GPS and, and having proprietary data or these guys asking these questions. And um, especially with something as innocuous as like vehicles. Oh, yeah. As like, so like in terms of your the demo following it's going to be so diverse also or it can it one the opportunity for yeah, one diverse. dealership might have sold 93 cars and it's like that was the hottest october ever and I'm like well that was just 93 cars mm-hmm. we sell millions or we the perver- the the national we right yeah so i think that it is an interesting um way of doing things but it's quite clear as you go through that that thread of the temperature ch- check thread it is cooling out there I had um, three people, uh, clients-wise, being like, should I be buying a car right now? And um, maybe I'm of the opinion that spring deals are going to be just off the hook. So if you're a dealership manager that listens to this podcast, please tell me when they should be (laughs) buying a car. Um, I'd be very interested because I don't know. Yeah, I I think – well, I wanted to get your take. So this this Hyundai initiative – through Amazon. Mm. What's your take on that? To me, Amazon is a ever-growing top-of-funnel um, sales and advertising platform. Mm-hmm. It's no different than running ads on Instagram at this point. Yeah. Because, like, my wife's Volvo so was effectively what? built on Instagram and yeah. ordered that way. So I just called the dealership. Yeah. So you're saying like more of a more of a marketing piece than it is going to be like whether or not the sales are crazy, like direct to consumer yeah. or I guess, yeah, direct to consumer that way mm-hmm. or whether or not it's just a really good thing for Hyundai to have as a general marketing thing. And it creates, you know, the um, the subconscious feeling of seeing Hyundai and thinking about Hyundai. Yeah, it's part of that. I think it's a little bit of both. It likely intrudes into the size of sales staff requirement. Okay. I think in the past, a lot of sales at dealership, at the dealership level required journal ads, auto trader ads. Also, there's probably a ton of money spent on, well, commission anyways. A lot of the margin is spent on the sales 
team. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure you need 30 salespeople to move cars anymore. I think mm-hmm. you probably only need a sales manager mm-hmm. that ends up fulfilling a lot of these things. I'm noticing a lot of these vehicles with the exception of like the ultra high-end cars like Porsche mm-hmm. and Ferrari, they don't have a lot of iterations. You go and you build a car on on Nissan or you build it on, on Volvo, if you build it on BMW or the features, you can't just have, there's not 180 different ways to build a car anymore. There's like yeah. 20 or nine mm-hmm. or six. You build, you have four colors for what you can do in, in terms of your leather package. You have like a sport package and then you have a regular package and then you have a bigger engine package or whatever. Mm-hmm. All of this is all built on the same chassis. It's just efficiency being found. I think advertising efficiency, sadly, a lot of the capital instead of being spent on the human is going to the advertising agency or the aggregator, the yeah, the big the tech Amazon. company. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, go to the eyeballs. Like I I think it's a it'll be interesting to see how it works out for them because obviously they were the first ones kind of dipping their toes into doing it this way. But to your point, it's like you're spending all this money and time and resources going through your, I guess, the advertising routes that are pigeonholed for your industry. So the auto traders and the journals and whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, well, there's way more people over here as it is. They're looking for products in general or perusing around Amazon like today, (laughs) going through and just literally searching. Like I searched... Elmo toys this morning for my daughter. And it's like the amount of stuff that came through that was obviously Sesame Street related, but then everything else too. Yeah. Also bought this, suggested this. Look at this ad here. Might as well have, why not have vehicles through there? People are buying those as well. I mean, I, that makes me think about this meme that a friend posted last week where it was like me, um, working every day for the last 15 years trying to um, climb the corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. And then there's a eight-year-old kid that just made $26 million opening <laughs> toys on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, that is that is a tough look for sure. I don't understand. We don't need to get into that. We could. You had a rant this morning that was quite interesting. I actually kind of want to do it a little. And you can stop wherever you feel uncomfortable. But for myself, I kind of understand where you're coming from. And this is what I believe to be a, you make a determination when you go into the workforce of where you're going. Are you going into an old traditional business in which is very well defined in terms of rules, in terms of profitability? Mm -hmm. It is like kind of that Lindy theory where accounting has been around forever. Wealth management has been around literally forever. It's the second finance is the second oldest industry in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the traditional hierarchy is much likely, more likely to stay around for a longer period of time than the reversal when you look at technology and new roles or new business um, opportunities for people when they think about careers and and whatnot. Um, And expectations can, for young employees, cannot be delivered equally. So your compensation can't look like a, you are a, um, how, do I, how do I put this? If you are a engineer or like a, a software engineer that is going to work for a robotics company or for a, um, a fast growing startup or yep. even for like a big tech enterprise to like Amazon or Google or Microsoft, yep. you are going to get an insane package. Probably, especially if you're like one of the, you're one of those hundred x entrepreneurs or hundred x engineers, you are going to make multi multi million millions. Let's assume you're not that special, <laughs> and you decide to go into one of those businesses. You likely are going to be compensated a little bit faster, better because of their bias towards a younger group. However, you go and you work into or you start your career inside of a traditional old Lindy from a Lindy perspective business. Yep. yep you're going to have to climb a corporate ladder for lack of a better term. And you can tell with a lot of these TikTok videos that the younger generation is upset by it. Mm-hmm. They think that it's not fair, mm-hmm. that they're being treated inappropriately. And I can attest to saying, I used to be like that and I'm becoming my father or my, at least the generation older. You're becoming a Republican. I am. Because, <laughs> uh, and... That, that's a joke, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's just me expressing my age more so than anything. Mm-hmm. But I think 
it's my experience now that that's how it works. You have to work your way into those positions of power. You have to have the experience. You need to have the, the knowledge. You need to have the network. And some people can acquire all of those things faster. And if you have a way of showing that you have acquired and perhaps professionally aged faster than you have mm-hmm. in real life, mm-hmm. you might get compensated for it. Well, I think but, the, yeah, I, I think the Lindy comp models or Lindy businesses in general, you're still going to be able to have a career there and be a very lucrative career, potentially. It's again, it's still going to, to your point, the model in which to get there is not going to change overnight. And if you are comparing yourself to say, I've been working for five years and working hard and I'm only getting paid this versus the eight-year-old on YouTube who's making $27 million opening toys, you are free to go and start a YouTube channel and totally. open toys and attempt to do it. Do you know how many people have had the same idea? Go well, on. And, once you've seen it once. <laughs> but the thing is, I think that's the disconnect with with the way that we we see and hear about people who are profitable in the content engine that is like the content economy. It's kind of a winner take all space. No one, no one knows like we're in a city of a, let's call it a million people. There is plenty of people who are doing very, very well for themselves and you have no idea what it is that they do and how they do it. Cause it's not pushed in our face every single day, how either easy something is or hard something is or whatever it might be, how lucrative something can be. This stuff in terms of, again, the content engine or the content economy, it's number one, our entertainment factor already. Mm-hmm. And then number two, it's in terms of their compensation is talked about all the time. YouTube earnings is this, advertising is this, Mr. Beast made this last year, this mm-hmm. good, good golf did yeah. this much or whatever yeah. it might be. And it's like, well, that's easy stuff. I can just do that. And like, why, why is, why can, how can there be so much money being paid to these people doing this work and not this much being paid to me? And it's, I don't necessarily think that's actually the conscious thought of people all the time to say like, just doing a direct comparison of those two streams of. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's sometimes even more subconscious saying, like putting a thing and you're like, oh man, I can't believe you can make a living doing that. But you're like, I can't do that. But then in the back of your head, you're still thinking like when it comes to I about your compensation or whatever it might be, it, it's not meeting, it changes expectations in your mind, I think, without even thinking about it. Because again, historically, the amount of information around how lucrative something could be in a certain job set was not so readily available. Mm-hmm. So again, I told you when I, I was talking about in general from talking to people in my industry and just the the mindset change in terms of, I would include the millennial generation in this to a degree, but in terms of the thought process when I've always had and when I started of like paying your dues, you have to do X for a long time really well in order to get what you want to get. And I'm not saying that obviously there's going to be a change to that on a go forward basis. I think there is, but I think in these old business models, that is still going to be the way there's going to be a finite amount of positions in relation to all of that. And only so much to go around. There's a lot of competition. And I think people would be very, and I think it's obvious when you really take a step back, obviously, but that same competition exists in all of these other (laughs) things that people think that they can, that they're comparing themselves to or saying, why can't I, why isn't there more money available for me, et cetera? You know how many people have started golf YouTube channels in the last year because they're like, oh, my, it's hit, it's popping off. Everyone will just sit down and watch this as opposed – no, like you – the there's only like 10 that are actually Garrett successful. Clark started at 14 making videos in his parents' Every backyard. single day. Now he's 24 and everyone's like, well, that was fast. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It took him a decade yeah. of being consistent about him – creating YouTube content. Mm -hmm. And now he is the king of YouTube golf. He earned it and deserved it and was early, early, early. A decade ago, he was making YouTube videos. You didn't even know YouTube existed. There's no way that you can draw a a line in which you can now somehow catch him. But (laughs) if you can find a niche in which you love that is currently not being um, capitalized on, yeah, give her. Go ahead. Do it. I think... um, Anything in life, all good things often take a long time. Bad things take short periods. 
Whereas great things are achieved over long periods of time, inch by inch, basis point by basis point. And um, unfortunately, careers are not much different than that in for the broad uh economy yeah see for the law of averages yeah there's gonna be always the people who do just hit it for sure you're probably special or you're lucky or you're lucky or a little bit of both you time the market perfectly exactly uh for context on my joke that i made about you being becoming republican that is a shane gillis joke from what a stand-up talking about he's like if you're 30 and you've started enjoying learning about world war ii and become a history buff that's the first step to you becoming a republican (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's by the time you're 65 years old you don't want to pay any taxes you paid everybody and yeah you're effectively voting that direction which is um super super true across almost all of my group chats and friend groups and network the older you get the more bitter you become (laughs) and it's just the way it works you know it's yeah it's good it's a good it's a good realization to be thinking about yeah so cam i want to talk about something quickly that Mm -hmm. i believe is value added i want to get some i want to clear up the short-term rental slash CRA changes slash what is the difference between provincial and municipal yeah. differences between I how this would be rolled out. And I, I'm, I'm giving you, hold on, mm-hmm. I'm giving you this, the chance to be brief and broad about it because it isn't sussed out yet. Yeah. I think we're still approaching something. But what I want to first make obvious to people listening, it's that this is clearly the direction in which our um, federal government is going and mm-hmm. some of the provinces that have massive housing issues. And this is not going to stop. This is, again, what we try to do in this podcast is identify trends. Yep. This is for sure happening right now. Like it's a huge, we, we've talked about the housing push. market so much with that but CMHC data. If I recall what we were looking at, call it three months ago or two months ago when we were chatting about it, saying that Production would need to increase. Was it like two hundred percent over the next ten years? Annual production needs annual to production. Yeah. So is that going? They were asked the question: Is there a way to get there? No, there is no way to add that many homes in new housing starts. Even with the incentives that they're throwing, but like the GST cuts that they've proposed on on new housing starts and everything that's been done to date, still, unless there becomes. We need 3D printers. We need 3D. We need a bunch of 3D printed properties. The other thing that they can attack or go after is obviously how many homes have turned into short-term rentals. Short-term rentals and and or homes that are being held for rich people have nine houses. Yeah, do they need to? Yes, and so that's a way of saying, well, if you're going to do it, we're going to we we know that we necessarily can't say you can't own this home. But we're going to make it very penalizing for you to continue to own it or continue to operate it as a rental property in this current form. So I want to mention one thing because I think it's important to understand. Mm-hmm. The reason why short-term rentals causes a problem for affordability is because there's a bunch of business models. You have a homeowner model where you are just a homeowner trying to buy a house in an area and you need to effectively buy this house based on what is the cost of mortgage, cost of uh, capital. And what's the difference between that and renting? And you need to find that to be a good idea. Second thing is long-term rentals. You have additional capital. You see what that rental number is. You are a wealthy person who has the additional capital to then go invest and buy a second, third, fourth, fifth residential property to then create a business out of. Mm -hmm. You then rent this to people that either have like signed one-year leases, six-month leases, two-year, three-year, four-year leases, or Mm -hmm. whatever, rental agreements. The next level to this is when we innovated and created, we, proverbial we, created short-term rentals, which is the idea of VRBO and and Airbnb. Mm -hmm. This now changed the business model. The way in which most of these people do this, in the same way that you have um, car lease businesses where they're buying personal cars and leasing them out on Turo, is if you can rent out your place for 21 days out of a a month that usually has 30 30 days, Mm -hmm. you can pull more money out of it than you could ever dream of doing in a short-term or a long-term, long-term rental, rental agreement yep. or owning the house yourself. Yep. And that allows for you under this new business model, especially when you can charge back all the costs and, and the cost of, of, of operating it, yep. operating yep. it. Yep. you can now pay more for that, that real estate 
So now that drives out everybody below you in the business model profitability game, which would be like people that want to live there and have a family and and contribute to society and have a job versus the people that are going to come and rent your place because they want to spend time in your city. Yep. And this is causing problems in Toronto, causing problems in Vancouver, Kelowna, Kelowna all of these more beautiful, picturesque cities that are incredibly Vacation desirable destinations, which are also desirable to live exactly. in. Exactly. So yeah. what they're trying to do here is make short-term rental business less profitable so that the cost or the willingness of people to pay for these things mm-hmm. goes down and drives the prices down, making it more affordable for the family and for the long-term renter. Yeah. And so I think I think to your point, and I do want to, I mean, I, I you make fun of me for being a fence sitter all the time. I think it's important that we wait to see what the federal government's response is going to be like on this holistically. So on Three days ago, November 21st, Christia Freeland gave her statement to the federal government's fall economic statement for 2023. So bullet point kind of summary here. Effective Jan 1, 24, the government intends to deny income tax deductions for expenses incurred to earn short-term rental income, including interest expenses in provinces and municipalities that have prohibited short-term rentals. So that's like the key part of that in provinces and municipalities that have prohibited short-term rentals. So that piece of legislation at either the provincial or municipal level needs to be in place is my takeaway and my understanding. If you're a loyal listener, BC came out with some new legislation and omitted a bunch of what I would call destination vacation cities like Invermere, Kelowna, um, Sycamuse, that sort of thing, Victoria, I think, Mm -hmm. or maybe cities around it. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, to support because of my my take that would be not based off of anything that's published would be those cities or towns or areas would their economy would be would be driven largely during certain parts of the year on tourism and people coming in. And so if you take the ability to take a bunch of those things off the market, then you're taking the your amount of people coming into those towns and being able to spend money and, and drive things up would be eliminated. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but I, I feel like that would be a consideration. Especially with, like, we think Vancouver tourism, it's happening no matter what. Mm-hmm. Kelowna, Sycamus, Vernon, whatever it might be, those places would be, they don't have the infrastructure from a, okay, well, you can't stay at the Airbnbs anymore. Just everyone come to the hotels. We got enough spaces for everybody. During certain times of the year, every single room in that hotel is jammed. Every single Airbnb and all of Kelowna is jammed. You can't just take that much supply off the market and see Not what happens see to the city. What happens there. exactly? Because exactly. exactly. they built out services for all of this. Exactly, stuff. They built yeah. out restaurants. One hundred percent. So where short-term rental operators are not compliant with the applicable provincial and municipal licensing, permitting, or registration requirements, the same denial of expenses will apply. The government is also exploring options to collect data on short-term rentals and proposing a $50 million investment over three years to support municipal enforcement of restrictions on short-term rentals. So again, my take, there's going to be more that comes from this. These fall economic statements are obviously briefings, giving general information for the most part. There's going to be more detail to come. As you point out, this is going to be ever evolving mm-hmm. and what this could mean in the, in the long term for short term rentals, maybe there will be a, um, once enough of the, I guess, provincial municipal regulations and legislations are there, then the federal government can release their own and have this overall assessment over how short term rentals are handled from a income tax perspective, from a reporting perspective, how these, how Airbnb and VRBO are going to be operating in our country etc. So I think stay tuned, obviously, mm-hmm. on this information. If you are a short-term rental operator, you need to be obviously very aware of this. And it needs to be not just the, again, not just the federal stuff. I think the it's it's very incumbent on understanding what's what's being done at the provincial and municipal level in cities like Edmonton or surrounding areas, et cetera, and, and, and what rules there are not are and are not around that. So something to keep keep tabs on. A couple other things uh, tax-wise that, we, that I wanted to kind of summarize that came out of the economic statement. So I went on at length about this underused housing tax regime that was instituted and 
the first filing deadline was supposed to be April 30th, 2023. That got pushed till October 31st, 2023. That then got pushed again until April 30th, 2024 for the 2022 taxation year. Now this economic statement has announced that there's a new definition of an excluded owner. So someone who is not required to do a filing. And that new definition has included what's called specified Canadian corporations, partners of specified Canadian partnerships and trustees of specified Canadian trusts as excluded owners. These owners would no longer have a UHT underuse housing tax reporting obligation. These changes are effective 2023 and subsequent calendar years. So the important thing to note there is that there is still a requirement to file this return for 2022 under the old pattern, mm-hmm. because you know, they couldn't just say, ah, we're scrapping the whole thing. With all the people we who made a mistake. With all the people who did file on time, incurred cost in relation to it, et cetera. And so takeaway from that is um, oh also sorry, the changes also include a reduction to the minimum penalties. So previously I think it was five thousand dollars for an individual, ten thousand dollars for a corporation for every single filing that was missed. That's been reduced to one thousand for individuals, two thousand for corporations. They're gonna make it ten cents in one cent. <laughs> yeah. So these changes would be would apply in respect of twenty twenty two and subsequent calendar years. So um, there are also, sorry, technical changes proposed, such as the introduction of a new exemption for residential properties held as a place of residence for employees and providing that condomini- condominiumized apartment buildings are not residential properties. So takeaway for me or for our listeners, anyone who has this or has been talking to their uh, advisors about this, whatever it might be. You, in most cases, I would say you're probably safe to assume that you now do not have a filing requirement for 23 on a go forward basis. You might still have one for 2022. There is a risk exposure to not filing that as if something does get caught and they see you don't do a 2022 taxation year filing, which is again due April 30th, 2024 now, you would be subject to minimum penalties um, and potentially more than that. So again, make sure you're asking about it. The This proposed change is obviously welcome news because the intention of that regime and what it was marketed as was not the effect it was having on everyday Canadians and people who own a long-term rental and rent it out six months of the year or whatever it might be, or held property through a trust that the intention of it was never to use as a rental property or as, an, or as the definition of an underused property under the initial regime or the initial legislation. All of that has been revamped. There are still some people who are going to be required to file. There are still some people who may think they, they, they fall under these new definitions and they might not. So please still have those conversations, but general takeaway, this is a really, this is a welcome thing and an evidence of a, of a, of a program that was, doomed from the start to a degree based off of the the feedback from day one. Last thing for small business owners, there has been an extension of the repayment deadline of the Canadian emergency business account loans. So those were loans that were given out in two tranches, one of $40,000, one of $20,000 from a maximum standpoint, $20,000 of that total 60 in aggregate if you got both loans or $10,000 of the 20 or $10,000 of the 40. Uh, was forgivable as long as you pay back the other remaining balance. It was initially deadlined for December 31st, 22. That got pushed to December 31st, 23. This has now been pushed to January 18th, 24, essentially citing the Christmas holiday time as a tough time of the year to be dealing with this for business owners and the like. For loan holders who apply for refinancing within the financial institution. So again, all these loans were obviously executed through ATBs and TDs and RBCs and et cetera, et cetera. If you apply for refinancing with the financial institution that provided the CBA loan originally by January 18th, 24, the repayment deadline to qualify for partial loan forgiveness now includes an extension until March 28th of 2024. So there's been some additional grace period. What I've been telling my clients, again, if if this if getting that extra few months will help from a cash flow perspective, whatever it might be, please do it. If it's not realistic that you're going to be able to pay back this loan, then go to your bank and start negotiating over what this might look like in terms of refinancing it into a line of credit type loan or a term loan over five years. The initial loan program was was said that it would turn into a term loan at X interest rate over, I think it was five years originally proposed. Just make sure you're dealing with it before this repayment deadline, if you still have loans outstanding. 
and talk to your bank and and figure it out because there's there's likely some negotiation and, and some refinancing that can be done with keeping these repayment deadlines and these partial loan forgiveness deadlines into account. So there has been these extensions. Again, January 18th, 2024 is the kind of really important thing. I would always suggest obviously contacting the bank before Christmas time here to get something in the pipeline and, and ready to go. Great breakdown. I'm not repaying it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> no. It's my money. Yeah. Um, Cam, I think that's enough for me today. Uh, my recommendation is to go out and get Morgan Housel's new book, Same as Ever. Outside of that, I don't have any other recommendations. Mm-hmm. I've got nothing for you. I show thanks if you're American. If you're yep. not. Yep. To our American friends, enjoy yeah. this weird holiday that we just call Thursday and Friday in Canada. Yeah, but it's quiet and it feels like another holiday. I kind of love it. Yeah, it's it's an it's probably the most unique holiday that I can think of. Like in North America, for sure, it is just with the because I, I would argue a lot of people that I talk to that have American roots would say that they put more importance around the gathering at Thanksgiving than they do at Christmas, even just because it's like a one day. A lot of the time, it's like a one day thing with with Christmas. I feel like and you just have so much else going on. Whereas like Thanksgiving, it feels like everybody drops everything. Well, in the so entire here's my opinion to, on it. Yeah. Thanksgiving and Black Friday is the most North American. I'm stealing it and broadening it out here. Yeah. Thing that is ingrained into the fabric of our culture, and that is consumerism, spending, buying. We are, one, giving thanks, but two, preparing for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And that is when or you need to buy things. I mean, consumerism is like ingrained into North America. Um, It's, in my opinion, it is the most important cultural difference between us and all of the rest of the of the world yeah it is why our recessions are sh- more shallow it's the reason why we're more well the rest of the world is more dependent on us than we are on them mm-hmm. it is our superpower to yeah. an extent so it, it, maybe it's something more uh palpable or I, I think a lot of the time people think that consumerism is bad but we never give enough recognition to the fact that it is the reason why that plus the American military, the reason why <laughs> we are such a diverse and dynamic economy. Why North America is North America. Well, it's the, I mean, it, there is no argument here. We have sh- more shallow recessions. We have a better economy, faster growing, more dynamic. We don't have as many economic issues. Our standard of living is higher. Mm-hmm. Um, wealth generation is larger. It is because of the consumer. It's because of who we are. So, Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Pray for the Oilers to win tonight, and we'll talk to you next Friday. Take care.